Hello, and welcome to the Radio Check Podcast, life in the concert touring industry, where we'll be speaking with and interviewing the best talent in the business, taking not only a deep dive into what it takes to put on a world-class show, but also life on the road and sharing experiences that span the globe, highlighting the people that are responsible for making your favorite artists look and sound great. My name is Matt Kanzi, and your host on this podcast is Chris Kanzi, a 40-year veteran in the live music touring industry. Over the years, Chris has traveled the globe several times over and has escalated through the ranks, bringing him to the top of his profession. He has established hundreds, if not thousands, of connections with other industry professionals, artists, and musicians. This podcast is your backstage pass to what happens behind the scenes and on the road when traveling and working with some of the world's top musicians. So sit back and enjoy. And here we are again. Uh, boy, this is great because for me, Chris, I, uh, I've seen you probably every week for the past three weeks. It seems like over the holidays we had a bit of a break, but uh, here you are again. How are you, man? I'm, I'm, I'm really good. Today's... Uh... Today's uh, an, a historic day because uh, I don't know when you're going to listen to this, anybody out there, but uh, today is Trump's last day in office. And, um, you know, I'm, you know, it's just so rewarding to watch him go out and the disgrace he's going out in. Oh, so you're it's happy just, about uh, that, huh? Yeah, yeah, I'm happy. It's, uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, uh, uh, you know, a sense of normalcy should be kicking in starting tomorrow, you know, hopefully. Hopefully. 25,000 troops in Washington, D.C. seems in pretty intense, but, you know, there it is. Yeah. But, yeah. How are you? Are you good? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, good. Yeah, it's uh, you know, cool. I'm, in, I'm as uh, most people that have listened to this know that I'm up in New England, so it's a little, you know, a little chilly and gray, but uh, no, all, all is good here. So it's a good start yeah. to the year, trying to stay busy, so. It's, yeah. it's in the 70s today in New Orleans. Crazy. Oh, boy. Crazy. Yeah, Crazy. well, hey. Okay, cool. Well, it's always nice to catch up, but we've got an awesome guest here that as soon as I, you told me that we were going to have him on board, it put a big smile on my face because even though I, we don't know each other, I had the pleasure of doing a little bit of work with him about 25 years ago. And certainly he is an icon in the industry. And I use that word yet again, um, but looking forward to this. So please, Chris, who do we got, man? We have, uh, uh, we have the, dare I say legendary? I can say legendary. Why the fuck not? The legendary Leroy Bennett today, uh, show designer extraordinaire. Hi, Roy. Welcome hey, how are you? I'm, I'm really good. And, you know, it's, 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 you know, we don't see each other that much. I mean, back in the day when we were kind of working together and, you know, and, you know, in the same social circle, we were kind of staying in touch, but as it happens, you know, time just passes. And before you know it, it's been 10, 12, 15 years since you see or talk to people, you know, and, and that's just happens to me more and more. And, you know, you, you know, you're in, you're in that group. So, yeah. It's, it, it is crazy that, you know, even, even now, and it's been obviously your show has developed out of the kind of, ingenuity and just the interest you know we never would have this time to do a podcast yeah and you know this last year has opened our eyes and to a lot of things about ourselves and our life and we finally slowed down and and you know that we've moved at such a high rate and i know i have for the last 40 years i've never been home literally hard i mean maybe in the average of 
three, four months out of the year. And that's crazy. Yeah. But it just, yeah. it just means time goes by so fast that suddenly you wake up in time like this where you go, holy shit, you know, 40 years went like that. Yeah, I know. And, 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 you know, in a lot of your time, not only you weigh a lot, but you've got, you know, several shows going at the same time a lot, don't you? I've become a very good juggler. <laughs> I, I could tell. I could tell. I know. I mean, sometimes when I work with you or, or where I'm around you when you work and you're, you spend half your time outside on the phone trying to deal with put out fires and other and other and other buildings, you know, it's it's funny. It's funny. But, you know, I, I, I you know, I want to, you know, you're, you're such, you know, like Matt said, an icon. And, and I really would like to, you know, kind of review your history a little bit, if you don't mind, if you feel comfortable doing that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, you know, of course, it all starts with Prince. It just does, you know. Um, yeah, oh, absolutely. We, 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 you know, just briefly, I mean, I, I, I told you before we started recording that I wasn't going to beat you to death with Prince questions. But it's such an, it's such an important part of your career where, you know, you kind of became who you are through working with him. Is that, is, is that safe to say? Yes. I mean, I mean, I was very lucky to uh, start my career as a designer with Prince. I mean, I had worked two or three years prior to that as a technician. So getting my first design job with Prince was pretty amazing. That was in 1980. And so that was a dirty mind then, right? That's correct. <clears throat> and, you know, sometimes, you know, we all talk, say things are fate or whatever, and just the way things are supposed, to, you know, things line up in your life the way they're supposed to happen. And I've always believed that. And I was lucky and blessed that I, you know, I started with the best in the industry. He, you know, we didn't know it at the time, but only time would reveal that, that it, we, not, not in the first few days of meeting him and working with him, but we eventually, after a week, we clicked uh, as a creative team and it stayed that way for 14 years. Um, and because of him and the way that he did shows and how we developed shows and his live branding and all of that, it helped develop me and who I am and how I created things. And it was, you know, it was just a very natural thing because we were basically totally uh, the same mind, creative mindset from the get go. And uh, he allowed me to do pretty much whatever I wanted to do. He had basic concepts, uh, very vague description of things. And his Prince spoke in a very unusual um, Prince speak. And it's more about you had to be inside his head than listening to what he was saying. And that was another important thing that he taught me as far as my job goes, because it's not just being creative, but understanding. It's a psychological thing. You have to be inside an artist's head to understand where they're coming from. Because you are ultimately, in a visual way, portraying the emotion, or you, know, you are uh, expressing to the audience what, what, this art, what the artist is about. And in order to do that, you have to understand who they are and what they're trying to say at the, at the time, what they're trying to say musically uh, from song to song. It, it, it really is, you know, it, it's an abstract art. 
but it is also a lot of it is psychological and it's also how you understand the audience and play into them too. Yeah. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I totally get that because it's not that much different from a production manager, you know, my relationship with the artist trying to understand how he communicates or she, or they communicate, you know, I, I totally get it artistically, you know, of course it's, it's much more visual, you know, um, did, did, so it was collaborative. Did yes. you, did he, did he sit in on programming ever or anything like that? Or, or was it kind of, this is what I want. And then you'd kind of show him later. Uh, it was a bit of both. Um, you know, he liked hanging out just to hang out. I mean, he, right. I mean, he was definitely a, a control freak on many levels musically, particularly with his band. And, you know, he, you know, he was one of the youngest artists. Well, he, I think at the time where Warner Brothers allowed him to be his own producer at such an early age. Right, right. So, so that dirty, was a big deal. So Dirty Mind, 1980, controversy right after that. After that, 1999. After that, Purple Rain. When, when did it kind of ramp up into, you know, because what, what Dirty Mind, going back to the beginning, were you just kind of, was it just kind of risers on stage and you were designing the lighting around it? Or what, when, did, when did it start turning into a show? I mean, it was always, it was always a show. You know, he was, it, it just got more theatrical over time. It, it he, he was a rock star. You know, he understood what it took to be a rock star. He lived it 24-7, hmm. 365. He, you know, he appreciated people like Mick Jagger and um, David Bowie and all the, all the people that were big rock stars, you know, and he, I mean, he had a, a love for a lot of different kind of music and he, you know, obviously loved Hendrix. Um, he disliked that whole persona. Um, you know, it, even with people like Freddie Mercury and uh, Jim Morrison, all, all of those, he just, he, he followed that as far as their lifestyle and the enigma of who they were. <clears throat> a little bit of James Brown in there too, I would imagine. Oh, there is James, totally James <laughs> Brown, just a little bit. Um, but it was, you know, it was, it was all about his fashion. Yeah. Um, you know, <clears throat> it was the bit of shock in there, you know, and that was, that was the early stages at Dirty Mind. That was the theatricality of it all was the shocking part of, how he was dressed, his, yeah. you know, he just was, you couldn't, people couldn't pinpoint him. They couldn't nail him down to whether he was gay or straight, whatever. He, they, he just, he was his own deluxe self. And it was disturbingly enticing, you know, and it That's was, there was a bit of danger to him that it kind of, it, it was uncomfortable, but it was just, you really wanted to watch it and it kind of drew you in that way. And that was, yeah. in it's very basic, you know, the very basic form of what eventually our shows became. I mean, I was, somebody uh, 
told me about three years ago, just shortly, a few months after his death, there was a uh, kind of a benefit or a reunion thing of the, the revolution in Minneapolis at First Avenue. And people flew in from all over the United States. And we were sitting in one of the days in, a, in the hotel lobby. And I was talking to a guy that was looking, one of the gentlemen that was looking to possibly promote the band. And they were going to do some, they have done some shows together. And I was talking to him and he asked me, and I was, we were sitting there with Susan Rogers, who was, was Prince's studio engineer for a long time, brilliant woman. And we were talking, he said, well, what was it like to work with Prince, you know, as far as being his creativity? And I said, well, I was very lucky that he gave me the freedom to do what I wanted. And Susan said, no, 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 no. He treated you like his equal. Wow. And that, yeah, and that's exactly <laughs> what I said. <laughs> so, because I never thought about it. You know, I was in the middle of it so much yeah. that I didn't stand back and I could see that. And this is... I was treated better than the band. I was treated completely different than anybody else around right. me. Um, I never took that for granted. And I felt very lucky that I was never at the end of <laughs> the right. print stick. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah, 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 well, a lot of people were. <laughs> but, so, you know, go ahead. I, no, I, I no, just, no, 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 no. I mean, I, I appreciate it, go ahead. And so it was just, you know, it, we, we started out basic uh, theatrics and then it gradually ramped up into what we know as Purple Rain. But it, it, it you know, the stage set became a little bit more of a statement on uh, controversy in 1999. It was, we used the same stage set both times, but I, it was all Venetian blinds. And I just, the only difference between the two sh tours, as far as the stage I went, is that I, I automated the blinds so that they can open and close. And, oh, wow. and I made them reflective. So it was one side was a matte color and the other side was a reflective mirror type thing. So, but it was, we just, we added different props and things and he started to build abstract storylines. Yeah, it, 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 you know, I I'd never got really into Prince until, or maybe even noticed him until until Purple Rain. What was 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 that when it really hit big? Purple Rain is that when you went into arenas? Is that when the tours got worldwide? Or what was it like leading up to Purple Rain? Well, I mean, on the Dirty Mind tour, the tour only lasted a few weeks because nobody was coming to the show. We were playing theaters, and there mm -hmm. were times where it was maybe fifty people maybe 200 but the most but it was it was embarrassing and it's because they didn't understand him so we canceled the tour and then we did some club dates and we did uh, a gig in new york and all all the celebrities came out warhol jagger all the guys from kiss there was a whole bunch of people there it was it was wild and it was also there was a a uh uh reporter that from the Rolling Stone that came and, you know, he reviewed the show and that article came out just saying, well, you know, people need to go see this guy. This is phenomenal. Um, we went out and did club tour and it just, it, it, when we played these, we'd show up at these clubs, we'd hold maybe 400 people, there would be a couple of thousand outside 
trying to get in. Oh, wow. And so it went from that. Then we went back to theaters and did the controversy tour. And then 1999 was a mixture of theaters and arenas. Okay. Oh, yeah. A little that, red Corvette was kicking and all that. Yeah. yeah. So that was when it started to ramp up and you could start to feel the energy. But when we started, when we filmed Purple Rain in Minneapolis, you could, there was just, the vibe was just completely different. I mean, it was, it was just at another level. Did the film come before the tour? Yeah. Okay. So the film, was it released similar to the release of the record? Was it kind of coincide with each other or? Slightly before. The, the movie and the, well, the movie and the and the record I think were coincide together, right? And then the tour came a couple of months after. Did they did they shoot your show, or did they was it uh, amped up for you know? Because well, actually, the Purple Rain it wasn't really that was just shot at uh, in, a, in a club, right? That was First Avenue, right? Yeah, well, what it was <laughs> it was my first experience with Hollywood. <laughs> it was. You know the, the Hollywood film people, and it the good the great thing about Prince was that he didn't want to do anything without me, any live performance. He just wouldn't do it, and that meant anytime he was on television, like award shows and all that stuff, right? He'd bring me in, and the production and the producers had to deal with me and the way that <laughs> I wanted to do stuff. I mean, I was very sympathetic to you know what they needed but yeah. I also knew what we were trying to do at the same time, which was different than anything they used to do. Yeah, they want lots of front open white light, and, yeah, you know, color correcting, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. And so when we were filming Purple Rain, I did all the live performances in the movie. And, you know, it was a very interesting, um, slightly, a uh, little bit of a struggle, let's say, with how I wanted, how I saw things versus how they wanted to do it. Um, it took a, a weekend, a very expensive weekend to prove my point with them. Uh, they, we did some test shots the way they wanted and then we did test shots the way I wanted to do it. And a lot of it also had to do with back, heavy backlight and uh, atmosphere, smoke in the air. They didn't, you know, they just didn't want that stuff. And once they saw it, and Prince said, I'm not doing anything. Either we're going to just blow this off or you're going to do it the way we, and you know, I want Roy to show you guys what it is that we're doing. And they, they signed off on it. You know, it was way different than they had done before. Nice. And then everything was fine and everybody was happy and all that stuff. And, 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 and then and you got you, a movie. And you, carried, and you carried all those lessons forward to, to the hundreds of other shoots you've done you know i would imagine you know oh yeah i learned a lot that day yeah so no, it was so, so you know purple rain obviously a big phenomenon and then uh you know i don't think he toured on around the world in a in, in around the world in a day did he no no that was it, it purple rain freaked him out you know it was you know it's one of those things be careful what you wish for yeah. and um, it, it put a lot of stress on him, you know, it was how do I maintain what I believe in in myself at this level? Am I selling myself out? 
there was a lot of stuff that was going on in his head. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. And so Around the World a Day was kind of like, I'm going to go off in this other direction. Uh, I need a break. I need, you know, I need to step back. I don't want to keep doing that. Right. And so, you know, we, there was a break from touring. And then immediately then, because he had a contract with Warner Brothers for three movies, um, he, he uh, did Under the Cherry Moon. And out of that, and that was the last, unfortunately, bittersweet uh, tour after, which was called the Parade Tour after yeah. the album, which is soundtrack yeah, yeah, yeah. to uh, Under Great the Cherry Moon. Great record. Awesome songs on it. And it was the last hurrah with the revolution. There was a lot of stuff going on. You know, there was a lot of tension and it was time, time for everybody to move on. Yeah, well, they, they, the revolution, they felt it was a band and not so much Prince or, or what was well, the tension? The revolution was the only band, real band that Prince ever had. You know, it was a family. We were all, we lived through, you know, it was the core of what the band was in 1990, uh, well, Dirty Mind when I started, then with the addition of Wendy Melboyne, um, and then prior to that was uh, Mark Brown replaced um, Andre Simone, who had been with Prince and they were close friends. They'd been together forever. Um, he was a guitar player? Uh, well, Andre was the bass player. Bass player, gotcha. Then Mark Brown or Brown Mark <laughs> came in to replace Andre. Andre wanted to go off and do his own thing. Um, then Des Dickerson, who was the guitar player up until uh, basically 1999, uh, it, through 1999, um, he was then replaced by Wendy, which was uh, Lisa Coleman, the keyboard player's uh, girlfriend, lover, friend. Um, yeah, Wendy and Lisa. Up, yeah, and they, they grew up together. And, um, you know, their fathers, for friends, they were big people in the music industry here in Hollywood. And um, so Prince gave her the shot at being the guitar player and she worked her ass off to mm. um, the Wendy that we know and love. Yeah. And uh, so that was, that was the revolution, but it, they were really his only real band after that it was just a bunch of hired musicians and yeah. and very talented musicians let me you know but it wasn't they weren't they weren't the revolution as far as a band goes you know they weren't yeah. well he so was it, he wasn't unlike frank zappa with his band you know he would rehearse his band and he was you know really really almost conducted the band in a lot of ways didn't he oh yeah he he was in charge yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like James Brown and you know like oh, oh absolutely they were the hand signals there yeah. were fines yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there, uh, there was there was a lot going on there I mean it was uh, it was his band it was his music he could play the instruments better than anybody else in his band and he understood the music better than they did and never could and that's much like me where I had to be in his head they had to be in his head too yeah. You know, he had patience and he would explain things, but it was only to a certain point. And if you didn't get it, then, and he, I mean, 
you had to understand what he was thinking without him saying it. Right, of course, of course. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, the, the shows were, you know, I, I've never seen him live, sadly, um, but I've watched the, you know, uh, the, you know, the Sign of the Times film, absolutely incredible. You know, the theatrics, the set, the, the abstract, like you were talking about, I mean, it was, it was like watching animation in a lot of ways, you know. Uh, was that about as big as it got? No. Um, after that, we did, you know, sadly and regrettably, we never brought Sign of the Times to the States. And I think that was a mistake. Um, he just decided to stop after, uh, while we were in Europe. Had he brought it to the States, I think the success of Love Sexy would have been better. But Love Sexy was um, production-wise a much more complicated uh, or complex production because it was in the round. Uh, I don't, to this day, don't believe there's ever been an in the round show that was like that. We had the car that came out of the stage and traveled around and really? we had, you know, it was all the lifts and there was, the at one point it looked like a suspension bridge or it looked like flower trellises, flowers bloomed out of the stage. Wow. I mean, if we had LED that we could put in the floor, we would have done that, but the floor was all light boxes and things. So mm -hmm. different letters would light up. It was just, it was a full on theatrical production. Who, who built all that stuff in, in, the, in the late eighties? Who, who was building That it? would have been um, John McGraw and Plainview. Okay. And he basically built all that, uh, like starting from, um, uh, purple rain so it was you know that was because there was hydraulics in that stage that you know and he was a master of all that yeah, uh, yeah. the mechanics at that point yeah so you 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 went through prince through what was the last tour? was it uh, was it diamond diamonds and pearls or that, that, that? yeah that was pretty much it i mean i did a bit of the gold experience which I, at that yeah. point i'm going what the fuck's going on that's new power generation at that point right? yeah um i left only because it was a revolving door of management business managers monitor engineers What's that? Monitor engineers. Monitor engineers. There was like all sorts of people. It was just a nonstop revolving door of people and also security. And at that point, I mean, I, even earlier on in my career with Prince, I'd go out while he wasn't doing anything. I always kept myself busy by yeah. going and designing other shows. When did, that, when did that start? When, when did you start working outside of Prince? Um, first tour... The first band that I worked with outside of Prince was the Scorpions. Okay. <laughs> um, what an I, interesting transition. I can't yeah. imagine. Well, John Broderick, you know, A bunch of German guys going, let's get the Prince guy, you know? No. Well, it was actually, um, I met them while I was a technician uh, when I was working for Zenith at the time. And it was uh, a Pat Travers tour and my, Lee Rose was the designer and he got me the job with Zenith. And uh, the Scorpions were opening up and that's okay. how I met them. And I met John Broderick and, um, you know, I got along with John and I got along with the band. And so what happened was, was that love at first sting or somewhere around that era, late eighties? That was the tour I actually did with them. Okay. Uh, and 
So they were going out and headlining their own tour. At the same time, John was working with Joan Jett. He couldn't, you know, Klaus, the singer in the Scorpions, had a throat problem. So they had to kind of um, cancel. They were kind of off the radar at the, uh, while for a bit while Klaus recovered. So John took other work. And of course, they planned a tour and John was in the middle of doing uh, Joan Jett's thing and he couldn't, obviously yeah. couldn't work, do the, the uh, Scorpions tour. So John called me and asked me if I could do it, but I was still at the last month, month and a half of print shows of, on a tour. And I said, I, you know, absolutely would love to do it. Um, but, you know, I have to finish this tour. So he understood they, they hired, basically, I finished the show, the tour, I got home. John said, are you available now? And I said, absolutely, because we've just gone through six designers. Oh, I need no. you out here now. So oh, they no. flew me over to, uh, flew me over to Europe. And the band, you know, I had to go in as a friend, a friend of the bands. <laughs> <laughs> because at that point, the crew was frazzled, the lighting crew. It was the first time I'd actually met, worked with light, light and sound design. And the first time I'd met all these crazy brummy boys. Oh, and, Tim Birch and uh, Nick Jackson. Oh, yeah. Mm. Well, it was at the time, it was Terry Lee, Nick Jackson, and uh, uh, um, Simon Austin, and Steve Docks. Okay. And I, I met, I met, I spent, Steve was the one I spent the least amount of time with. And I spent a lot of time with Simon Austin. It was the first time I met Simon. I thought he was the evilest little fuck I had ever met in my life. <laughs> <laughs> but we became friends after a while. But it was, that was, when I, when I went out there and I arrived, it was just, like I was saying, the, the crew was, they were ready to revolt. And so I had to come in and eventually the next day they said, okay, Roy's coming in to take over. And I, I, I went and looked at what they had. I watched the, watched the show pri uh, the night prior and it wasn't, it was more of the operation versus the design. Cause every time a new designer came in, there was a whole, they redid the whole thing. Oh no. And I said, look, I'm not going to redesign anything. Just show me what's in the truck. And we're going to gradually, Steve Harris or Dak Harris was the crew chief. And I said, look, we're going to every day add a little bit more, change it a little bit, but we're not going to, I said, I'm not going to stress you guys out. And, and, and so you that was, him, I'm sure you want them over just, just doing that. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. I mean, it was because I had started as a crew person, I knew what it took and I knew what their lives had, what they had gone through and I wasn't going to screw with them. Right. Um, so that was my first kind of project outside of Prince. And was it, but how'd that feel? You know, to be to be working outside of Prince just for the first time was it? Was it, 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 it must have must have felt good just to be doing something different or just to be around different people. Oh, I, oh absolutely. You know, and it's just you know I appreciated the Scorpions' music and it was fun to work with them. I liked them. They were great guys. They're funny and for, for Germans, they were very funny. <laughs> 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 you know, it's just you know they. It was just, it was a joy. I just, I love being in Europe. Um, it felt great. It gave me an opportunity to do other things and approach other projects and, and constantly develop right. and experiment. And I had, you know, Prince is very possessive. He was very possessive and he didn't like me going off because he felt I was giving other people great ideas. And I explained to him, I said, look, if I go out 
what I'm doing is I'm learning something and bringing it back to us. So if I experiment on something with another artist, I learn something and then I come back, I'm not going to copy what we, what I learned. It's just, it gave me a new road, yeah. another venue, you know, another avenue to go down. So it's like, it's for both of our advantage and benefit right. that I go off and work with other people. It was, you know, it, he, 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 you know, it was kind of like a little kid sometimes, but mm. he, he understood. Yeah, yeah. He, he'd grumble, whatever. So the only time it became a problem, and it was one of the things that bummed me out more than anything else, was I got an opportunity to work with Queen, and I was a massive Queen fan. Jerry Stickles gave me a call and he said, look, you know, the, the guys really want you to work with them. That was their last tour, kind of magic, right? It was, yeah, it was Freddie's last tour. And I thought, fuck, wow, a dream come true. And he said, the only thing is they want you to be on a whole tour. And I said, okay, I'm, I'm down for it. So I called Prince's management and I said, look, this came up and what are we doing? I need to commit to this. And they said, no, no, it's, it's all fine. He's, he's in the studio, so you, you can go do that. Commit to it. And then I think it was probably two or three weeks later, I get a call from Bob Cavallo saying, you need to come out to LA now. And I thought, oh, fuck, what's going on? And basically I, was pulled into the office and told him, I was told I will not do the tour with the queen. You, he said, you absolutely cannot do the tour. I said, but I committed. He goes, sorry, you know, you have to back out. And, and it was funny because it got pretty heavy and all that. And Prince was outside the, <laughs> outside in the hallway while there I was being interrogated basically. And um, the door opens and he, comes in and he goes, what's their singles name? Prince of the universe. And he let out this really loud cackle that he has and then ran out, slammed the door. And that, <laughs> and, then, and Steve Farnelli and Bob looked at me and go, did you get the message? And I said, I did. So I, I had to call Jerry. Fortunately, Jerry and the guys totally understood what I had gone through. And I still designed the show. I just couldn't go out on the tour. Oh, so you didn't see it? No, I was in rehearsals. I spent time with Freddie, which was actually oh, a wow. lot of fun. And just something I'll always remember and cherish. Yeah, because they had those really big inflatables that they used to yeah. fly for that show, right? Yeah. yeah. What, a, oh, what a great opportunity that must was. You know, I, I, I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, I mean, it was one of my biggest regrets. And I didn't, I wasn't able to go out and operate the show. Yeah. Well, I think the first time I saw one of your shows uh, in person was uh, 88 Duran Duran. Yes. Did you operate that or did you just design that? Yeah, I was out on that tour. That was the one where they had the big uh, silhouette psych upstage and the dancers used to go behind it and, and, and dance behind yeah, the and we Yeah, and right? we also had the, the uh, wall of CRT tube video, right. that video right. screen that never worked properly. <laughs> I couldn't tell you whether it worked or not. Well, it was, it was, it was, 
because Trip Caleb was the front of house engineer on that. Was tour. he? I didn't yeah. know that. Oh yeah, and it, it, that was a hysterical match. You know, it was just Trip, Mister Mister Grumpy. I hate everybody, including myself, and <laughs> and Duran Duran, which are the lovely guys. And yeah, you know, yeah. and I was a fan of their music as far as pop bands go. If they were a pop rock band, I appreciate them. They've written some of the most amazing. I agree. Pop songs ever. I agree. And and I got along with Simon and, and John really well. I, I, you know, I got developed a very close relationship, particularly with John for a while there. And um, no, that was fun. But we had, there was this wall of CRT tubes. And what it would do is it would pull up flat as it, like up into the, the rig. And every time that it got close to the, the chain motors, of course, it would screw up the, the, the tubes and you'd have to degauss them. So every time it came down, they were all, all out of whack. But it, that wasn't the thing. Was Who designed was a, that? That was John McGraw. Um, <laughs> but there was, there was two things that were awesome because there was no time code stuff or any of that going on. And for Wild Boys, the, the word Wild Boys would come up on the screen, but it would have to be hit by one of the technicians so there was two separate words. So he'd have to hit wild boys. And every time he did it, the guy had obviously was very white, no rhythm. <laughs> it had come up boys wild, boys wild. <laughs> and then, um, but that was the, the best part was there was the time when Simon's face would come up on the screen. And there was never really one screen would always be, you'd have Simon's head face on the, all the screens. And then one of them would just be its own Simon. So it looked like a little talking Simon on his chin <laughs> or somewhere on his face. So oh, everybody funny. used to place bets to see which one of those screens was uh, but, but that was No, let me, let me ask you this. When, when, did you, when did you stop operating? When, when did you just design and, 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 and put operators in? When did you, when did you stop touring? In 94, when I left Prince. When I walked away, okay. that was it. Um, okay. You know, it's there. Since then, you know, the only time, the only artist that I've really gone out on tour with is McCartney. Um, he demands that you're there, doesn't he? Yeah, for the most part. Yeah. yeah I, I, at the first few tours, I was there at every single show. Right. Um, now I don't have to be like I don't have to go to Des Moines, Iowa, or someplace like that. Yeah. Sorry, nothing against Des Moines, Iowa, but you know, it's just that, you know, there's just certain cities I don't have to go to. Uh, if it's New York, LA, London, Rome, yeah. basically if I, or to Japan or, to, or Korea or, or even anywhere in South America, it's, you know, there are times when he'll just say, he'll turn around and say, I yeah. just want to talk to Roy and it's, He's yeah, got yeah, something yeah. he just wants to talk to because he's very departmentalized in how he talks to who he talks to thing, things about. You know, so if you're a production manager, he talks to you about production things. If it's creative, he won't talk to anybody but a creative person. And it's that because of that, it's, that's why I have to be around there a lot. Because, right. you know, he, he doesn't change a lot during his shows and stuff, but every once in a while he wants, to, he has a, a creative idea that he wants to add something in or yeah, of course. Try out or whatever. So, well, through through all the Prince years, did you do all your own programming? Yeah, I didn't program very lights. 
Um, but, I, and that was, Purple Ram was the first time I actually did a show where I had to have another operator. Right. And I remember those that, days. That, that was a little freaky for me. It's like, this guy has to keep up with me. This yeah. guy, I'm responsible to make sure that he's doing exactly what Prince and I want. And um, I knew it was the only way, I mean, that's yeah. how it had to be, but it was, it was a real exercise in patience. It was a, uh, but not just patience, but also teaching somebody something. It was the first right. time I actually had to teach somebody uh, how I wanted them. And because they were automated, I had to teach them how I wanted to make fairy lights emotional versus just swinging around for, yeah, of course, yeah. you know, moving, moving for movement's sake. And that was, it's always been my thing about technology. I, I, I like what it does because it can get things closer to what's in my head. I just don't like to see it. And to make things technology emotion, emotional it, and, and organic, it takes a lot of time. Yeah. And when, when, spend, did, when did you stop programming yourself? Uh, I, 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 initially, I stopped programming back in 94 okay. when, I, when i stopped touring is when i stopped programming that doesn't mean that i'm not there in or rehearsals the i'm still telling the programmers so. exactly yeah. what to do yeah when when you when you when you build a show these days um i know i know lighting is your first love do you start does lighting come to your head first when you're designing a show or what what are the what comes to your mind when, whether it's Lady Gaga, Paul McCartney, or whatever? What, is it, well, you know? well, there's there is an architecture that exists in a stage set, right? So, whatever that physical architectural statement is, start. That's where I start. But it, in parallel, I'm thinking about how it, the lighting is incorporated, because it, to me, it's all the same thing the stage set is a lighting instrument in itself and that's gotcha. how that's how it triggers off in my head so of course what, when i'm designing a stage set it it is in tandem the lighting is right there at the same time and I, I, there are other lighting elements that i add on after once that thing has been established then i add the, the other you know the additional lighting in top on top right, of it right do you do you do you specify whether it's a, a hog or a grandma? Do you care or do you? Do you... Oh, well, absolutely. And uh, we used to use uh, hog twos for quite a while until high end screwed everything up and made the hog three and just, yeah. it was an unreliable console. They changed stuff just to change it, not taking consideration the programmers because when the programmers are programming console, there's a rhythm that they have. You know, it's, you know, it can take a long time to program stuff because of all the button pushes. So if, if a programmer has a certain rhythm and a dance that they do with their fingers because they know where it's going at all times, when you start to move stuff around, suddenly they have to stop and think. That slows down the programming process immensely, which could, you know, maybe you spend two hours on something, could take 10 hours ultimately if somebody has to constantly stop and think and do all that stuff. So it, that was, I, the first time I used a whole hog three was where I was doing a 
<laughs> a show in Vegas. It was just an, an outdoor thing at Treasure Island, the, the Sirens of T.I. And we had the, the that was, I had, I was convinced by high end that, that they'd worked out all the issues and that, you know, it was working properly. And so I convinced the uh, MGM group to buy that console for the show. And then while we were programming, it crashed constantly, oh, no. unnecessarily. And it crashed one time in a very scary point when one of the uh, divers was diving off a mast into the pool. And in the pool, there's these all these water jets. And if he doesn't dive straight down, he could get impaled on one of the, on the shooters. Oh, boy. And the lights, we were programming, and of course the console crashed, the lights went out right when the guy dove. Fortunately, nothing happened, but of course everybody freaked out. And that was like the last straw. Okay. <laughs> I called John Wiseman, who was working with High End at the time. I said, John, this console, if it didn't belong to that MGM, I was going to throw it in the pool. I said, <laughs> I've kind of had enough. Saving so, for a fountain. <laughs> the next, exactly. So the, uh, the next, next best thing was Grand MA. Yeah. Um, and at that point, uh, I had already, I was in full mode of using Simpty code. And that's why the whole hog two was great. Cause it, it, you know, it worked off of it would take the Simpty signal. And so the Grand MA was the next thing. And then, so after that, I haven't used anything since well, all yeah. my, all my programmers work on. That's where it seems to go now. That's yeah. a, a lot of people are using the Grand MA now. Hey, I want to, well, I want to back up. No, no, go ahead. It's a, it's a rock solid console. Yeah. I mean, it's had issues and then there are updates and stuff like that. And it, still... it costs three times as much as a hog did anyway. You know, it's, it's a, it's a much more sophisticated piece of kit, isn't it? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, it, it the you know the amount of queuing that we have going on in the show uh, it it keeps up with it which is right great and it also is the amount of lights that you can um control and all of that stuff it's you know it's it's a, it's a very good system yeah so so when i when i think of you you know if, if your name comes up I, I i immediately go back to the shows that really impacted me intensely lighting wise and that was of course uh nine inch nails where, where we met and worked together for the first time um the cure's wish mm -hmm. uh depeche mode's violator those those tours were absolutely mind-blowing uh and another one you know that i've seen a couple times is your sade shows i thought your sade shows were fucking stunningly beautiful you oh, know you. uh now back then, you know, nine inch, nine inch nail specifically, you know, with the, with, you know, the shadow was every bit as important as the light, you know, the darkness and the punch and whatnot. Uh, all those shows, lighting was the star, of course, you know, more so than video or props or gags or whatever, lighting was the star. Um, how, do, you, do, you, do you miss those days? Because you and I were on a phone call recently uh, where we were talking about maybe the industry needs to reset a little bit and maybe now's the time to reset. And, you know, I, those, those shows, those, those shows were so dynamic and so important to me in my memory and in, in my, in my, my growing experience in this industry, you know, just how, how I feel about what I do for a living. I think about those shows, you know, what, what do you, what do you remember about those shows and, 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 
you know, do you, would you go back there if you could? Oh, absolutely. And I just had that conversation a few days ago um, with a bunch of people that at this point we may have to until the industry gets going up to full speed. You know, it's, I describe it as a big freight train, you know, and it's come to a screeching halt. It doesn't start as fast. It could, it stopped faster than it can start back up. Yeah. And it, it has to be done in a very responsible way. And that means that, you know, we may not have the financial resources to do productions like we've been doing for the last, you know, 15, 20 years, it keeps getting bigger and more complicated. Mm-hmm. So it may have to go, with the exception of a few artists, it's going to have to go back to be a bit more basic. And, and, I, and I said, you know, that's a really good thing to do. I said, it's going back to, uh, it's a reset and using your creativity in a very basic mode if possible. Because I yeah. said, it's, it's, you can do it. And it doesn't require all the stuff. Some yeah. artists need some artists need it, but a lot of them don't. You know, yeah. a real a real musical artist can get away with the just lighting and just yeah. you know. And I have nothing against video, and I I love video. I love projection more than I like LED. So much warmer, yeah. Yeah, and it's more cinematic and just feels better. You know, you're yeah. not. It's not offensive. And. But, you know, it's just using lighting. That's why working with Rammstein for the, all the years that I had, there was no video in that show. It was just lights. Yeah. And it was some of my, some of the most favorite, my favorite shows that I've done for a long yeah. time because it was like, I could go off, work with them, and I didn't have to think about video. Yeah. You know, video... I, I was making more reference to... You're, 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 you might be making more of a reference to necessity. I'm not necessarily going with necessity to, to reset, you know. I'm thinking about just how punchy and dynamic Nine Inch Nails was. How, you know, the cure, wish, you know, those were, it's just lights coming out of nowhere. And, you know, you, did, you didn't necessarily needed to balance the stage and light. And it was parts of the stage were dark. Some were light, you were lighting air. You know, those, those, I don't know, there's something about those shows that just make me feel so good. Well, it's more dimensional and a lot more powerful and a lot more emotional. It's more almost tactile. And I, I yes, yeah, I, it, it is out of necessity in some cases, but it's also a positive thing because it, it gives us a reason to think about it and go back to that. And it's not that we have to have a reason, yeah. But I, it's helpful, and I, I love that. I mean, I love just lights, and I love the power of them. Yeah. You know, there is more impact. It's more theatrical. It's more. It's it's in your face, mm. uh, in in a, in a three dimensional sense uh, than just video, which is flat. Yeah. Well, well, speaking of three-dimensional and video, another big memory of your work was on Sade, where you had the LED screen upstage, and then you had the psych downstage. You were, you were, there was an image of Sade riding a horse on the beach or something, and it was the same image was on the LED screen that was being projected downstage. Mm -hmm. So it almost created 
that was like the first attempt at 3D. It's a, a three-dimensional three-dimensional <laughs> image. Yeah. But it was fascinating though, seeing seeing the the pro projected image downstage of the LED image upstage, the same image coinciding with each other at the same time. It just it was just it was really dramatic. Well, it was my first experiment with layers of video. Um, and I'm a big fan of that, of doing multi-layers of uh, video where they interact. I call it 3D, 2D, 3D. And it's, I did that with nails, with yeah. uh, the, the blow-through screens, uh, you know, where you've got three, three layers of, of content going that interact with each other. It, it creates, I, I, I love depth and I don't necessarily like to see where things end. I like, I like infinity if possible. And that is a way of kind of creating depth uh, in a visually, in a, in a, in a, in a, with, with content. And, and um, it's, it, it's, it's like an illusion. I like creating illusions and messing with people's heads and how they're, they're in their perception. Mm. And it, it, it's, it's what I do is meant as an enhancement and never a distraction or a detraction. And I, I don't, and I, I, I it's, that's, that's, the focus is always the artist. And it's playing with visuals in a way that you're creating an atmosphere in the world around them, but it's still, they are still the focus. Right. Well, another one of my favorite things that I, that I saw, I only saw it online. I didn't have the pleasure of seeing it live was the how to destroy angels thing that you did with the video screen of the downstage. And then, and then, it, and it was, that was it. The screen was in front of them, the, the band in their four kind of craft work like positions behind it with simple lighting and imagery. It was like a half a truck of gear only. It was crazy, right. but it was well, that, so that was, impactful. Well, that was a, a, the whole thing was made up of surgical tubing and it was sections like columns of surgical tubing um, that could rotate and track a little bit. And there, there was an upstage LED screen, but the idea was that the, I wanted to create a um, immersive dimensional uh, atmosphere around the band, uh, you know, a, a architecturally structural three-dimensional uh, thing that it could then um, project onto. And it took a long time to figure out exactly the right, we experimented with a lot of different materials. And initially I wanted to use monofilament, but the problem with monofilament, it has, memory to it. So when you pack it up, it's gonna come out kinked and all this. So that's what we used the monofilament, I mean the uh, surgical tubing because it, it, it wasn't the easiest thing to travel with, but it was definitely the, the best thing for the job. And it was, it, it, then the, uh, you know, putting the band in the middle of it, it was then they were inside this kind of box, but you could still see them. Yeah. And so, and so, it depending, so. and it was also, I like things that it, the 
perspective for the audience. They're not, not everybody's sitting dead center. Yeah, yeah, so it's just, it's when you get off center, everybody gets a different view, but they're getting a really interesting thing to look at. Right, right. So impactful. Um, let's, 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 I want to ask you about content. I mean, obviously all your shows you do now, you know, you're doing, you're doing, you know, Paul McCartney and Lady Gaga and, you know, the big stuff, Ariana Grande. How do you source your content? Do you, do you, do, do you have the same stable of people that do content for you? Do you, do you search around? Does it depend on the show? How do you, how do you source content? Well, I mean, I've got various content houses that I use, um, that I use pretty consistently. Um, and video content people, uh, it's not just one, but it also depends on the project. Some, some con content houses are better at certain things than others. You know, it's different certain kinds of music yeah. versus, you know, somebody that's like Nine Inch Nails is different than somebody that I would use for McCartney, possibly. Right, right. You know, and it's, it's, but there is, you know, I, I use Possible a lot. They're a, a great content company and they're very diverse in what they do. You know, right. and, and I, that's why I use them because they, they are able to, a lot, a lot, it's not just the content, but how I'm using it. You know, if I'm using it in a dimensional way where it's being projected onto different surfaces or whatever, and how that all interacts, they have to understand yeah. that. Whether it's eye candy or texture or whatever yeah. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you still find that uh, content is one of the biggest line items in the budget? Always is. Yeah. And it, <laughs> you know, yeah. Con content can eat up a budget real quickly. It can. And, you know, it, it, that's the other thing is finding somebody that's creative at a content house that will work with you within the budget that you've got. Yeah. Yeah. You know? It's, it's, it's tough. And, it's, it you know, and of course, they're, they're there through pre-production with their video suite in one of the dressing rooms, tweaking and changing and updating and, and whatnot. You know, it's... Uh, I've, that's what I find. I find I find it to be very expensive. And, I'm, and, I, and I wondered what you did, you know, because it's not it's not as simple as calling Moment Factory anymore and, and, and just, you know, telling what you want, because it could be a million dollars a song sometimes. It can be. Oh, absolutely. It, it depends on how complex it is. Yeah. When, when you get into being building virtual 3D imagery, that's what takes the most, you know, when you're yeah. that it takes a lot of processing to, to make that stuff. I mean, yeah. it's, it's getting better with, uh, you know, with the processing power with things like uh, the Unreal 5 software and stuff. It, it's enabling some really interesting things, but it still takes a lot of money and time. It sure does. This stuff. You, know, you sure got to pay yeah. the artists what they're worth. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I, I, I also, you know, I had this chat with Marty Hom recently, you know, about, you know, how he's worked for so many divas. You know, you've done, you know, Ariana, Beyonce, Madonna, Janet, Tina, Shakira, Katy Perry, Lady Gaga. And there's probably a lot more in there that I, you know, what's it, what's, uh, what's it like? Is it, uh, are they just individuals just like anybody else or? or? Oh, absolutely. I am. Yeah. <laughs> I get along with women real well. Um, I've been married it's four been, times. Yes, so. yes, you have. <laughs> but it's, you might think, oh, well, that's, no, I'm a romantic, but I, I am, you know, it's just, I grew up between two sisters, an older sister and younger sister, and basically a house full of women. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I have no 
you know, it's not hard for me to say. My father was, he was gay. It didn't come out of the closet until I was 19. But it was just, you know, I grew up in a very, a home that was very sympathetic to femininity. Right. And so I understand women really well. I understand how to talk to them. I know their emotions. I, you know, I, but I, you know, I have to do that with artists anyways. Yeah. You know, men can be divas too. Oh, but, of you course, know. of course. I'm, I'm not so much asking that question because, you know, the difference between men and women, you know, but, you know, I, I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the women you've worked for are some of the hardest working people in the industry, you know, you know, Beyonce, Madonna, I mean, very well rehearsed, put a lot of time in, you know, pay attention. They know what's going on, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of respect. I worked for Janet once, and I, I found her to be an incredibly hard worker. You know, yeah. when it came when it came to uh, you know choreography and just rehearsing the show, wouldn't leave well, wouldn't leave the building until it was right. That kind of thing. Well, they, they, all those women are like that, and and I have the highest respect for them because they and it's yes, it's not. Be, I get along with women really well, but they are again just an artist that I respect their determination and their yeah, dedication yeah. to their art and what they are. Um, it's, you know, working with women like that, that are, you know, like Madonna and Beyonce. Fortunately for me, I started with the hardest. So after that, everybody's easy. So I, I, Prince Madonna, was, you're referring to Madonna? Oh, you're referring to Prince, gotcha. Prince, yeah, Madonna, she, you know, she's who she is. Um, but after working with Prince for all those years, it made it very easy for me to work with other people. Right. You know, and not being intimidated or, um, you know, they're just another artist that has a certain vision that they expect to be carried out. And... You know, you have to particularly, you know, they, they all have insecurities and like any, every artist has insecurities to a certain level, some more than others. And a lot of my job is to make sure that they feel safe and secure and they don't have to worry about what I'm doing right. and I've got their back, you know, and, and that I care and which I do. I generally care. I don't do anything just to do it. It's not a job. It's something. It's a passion. And so when I talk to these women, you know, it's you with insecure people in general, not just women, but men stuff. When you show a sign of weakness, particularly to an artist, they'll attack you because then they're feeling insecure. And you have to make sure that they feel secure with who you are. And if you have to stand up sometimes and say, I don't agree, this is the right way to go. And you have a reason for it, you need to do that. You can't, artists don't want yes people. As much as they think that, as much as you may, or a lot of people think that they do, they don't. The yes people are the first people to get cut off. Yeah, the sycophants, yeah, they're gone. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's just, artists don't want to hear yes all yeah. the time. They don't yeah. want, they don't, want arrogance from you either you know they just want someone to listen to them and then speak up when it's time to speak up of course of course and and that's how you deal with artists yeah. well two of the other huge pop artists you work in the world you know bruno and, and the weekend i mean two <laughs> i mean they're possibly the two male 
biggest male stars in, in our industry. Well, again, it's a lot of how I deal with these people and a lot of my history is respected by these, you know, by Bruno or with Abel from the weekend. That I started with Prince, that he was the, an artist's artist, a musician's musician. And that holds a lot of weight. Yeah. And there are similarities between a lot of artists that I've worked with as far as how they function. Their music may be different, but their approach to their art is very similar. And it's, there's a bit of, a bit of Prince and Bruno. There's a bit of Prince in Trent Reznor. There's a bit of Prince in Abel, The Weeknd. You know, there, there is, there's the same thing with Madonna. There is a certain thing, there's a certain level. And I've been very blessed to work with a lot of artists that are the top of their craft. Yeah, they have their eye on the prize, you know, they know, yeah. and, and you know, and they care, you know, it's not yeah. just, uh, it's not just, you know, let's just do a show, Let, let's do the best show, you know, let's, let's, you know, all the details, the small details, they all add up to something grand. Well, the details make a difference. And yeah, that yeah, is what I'm about, you know, it's about the details and spending the time and, and the importance of the details. And I, I appreciate working with people. I don't like sloppy people. I don't yeah. like, it's not that I don't like them. I just don't, it just, it's not something I, I don't enjoy working with sloppy people. Yeah. You know, so some of my, my favorite memories of this industry were you, Trent and I sitting at the front of the house, going through the show song by song, you know, cue by cue and just mm -hmm. creating that fragile show with those moving video walls. And do you, do you remember in rehearsals when the, 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 the automation just wasn't working, you know, they, they just did and we, and we ended up just putting chain motors on it for the first few shows. And, you know, those, they're, they're you know, the LED walls are going up and down and like, <laughs> you know, link by link shaking and whatnot until, until we got, until we got the, the winch system working. But, you know, those are, those are great memories for me, you know, being in that, being in that creative zone is very rewarding because I, I started off as the lighting guy when I was a kid. I owned my own par 64s. I used to carry them around the back of a pickup truck and do local shows around New England and New York City. <clears throat> and then I somehow got out of it. You know, I started working with Joe Jet and the Blackhearts. I became a guitar tech and their production manager and kind of, you know, it wasn't planned for me to abandon lighting. And it kind of saddens me a little bit wondering what would have happened to me in my career if I stayed with lighting. <clears throat> but I love that aspect of it. You know, I'm not saying I favor the lighting department over anybody, but I, <laughs> I love being at the front of house during the creative process. I love watching the show to come together. Um, if someone asks me my opinion or invites me into the creative conversation, I relish that. I so much enjoy that. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's, you know, you're kind of chasing that, that feeling all the time, you know, that feeling when you know it's good and when you know it's right. And, and, you know, when you're seeing it happen right in front of you, you know, uh, you know, well, some that's people... what, that's what makes you stand out as a production manager from a lot of other production managers. Not to say there aren't other ones that creatively are in tune with the production and they understand what it is and they take it, you know, the passion for it. But there are some that just, it's just about loading trucks. 
Yeah, you know, I, 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 I you know, there, there's a show in between load in and load out. I totally get that. I totally oh, yeah. get that. And I understand it. You know, uh, John Huddleston and I just podcasted together and we were talking about that, uh, you know, the, the new technology that's, uh, that's getting into the industry, you know, that you know, whether it be black tracks or, or infrared cameras tracking things and whatnot. And, and it can be tricky. It can be tricky. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I know a lot of people are fighting against it. But, you know, I told you the next thing, exact thing I told John was, you know, I, I want to be on the front end of it. I want to support it. I want to be the guy that's helping leading the new technology because you know what? It's coming and it's coming for good. Much right. like, much like automation came, much like video came, you know, much like lasers came, you know, they're part of what we do now. And, and you either embrace it or you're going to get left behind. Uh, I mean, absolutely. You know, I've been always been a big advocate of technology as much as I hate it. I love it at the same time. Right. Uh, but, and I'm not afraid to go out right up to the edge all the time. Cause that's what I want to do. I want to always push the edge of technology as much as possible. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm always on top of all the new stuff as yeah. much, and, and I help consult on a lot of it. Um, I've been very lucky because I, as I grew up, I grew up before all that, the technology, uh, I, I started before moving lights. So I've been able to play through all those generations of all sorts of stuff, whether it is moving lights or it's LED or whatever tracking systems and automation. And it's, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. And what comes out of our industry really does impact the world too. You know, we've created things that have filtered through into day-to-day -day life for a lot of people. Yeah, you know, and it's, agreed. It's, well, if you know, if you, you know, the, the Tate guys, you know, they're, they're, and, you know, what Mark Fisher started way back when, you know, all these, you know, cruise ships and installations in China and theaters and whatnot. I mean, where shit's going 24-7, you know? Mm -hmm. 24 seven, this, 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 these, these two magnets touch each other or this automation thing moves every five minutes, 24 hours a day. And it's got to keep working and it's just got to keep producing, you know? Uh, so techno technology is, like I said, it's here. Oh yeah. Nice you can't find it. it, you know? And I, you know, I also, you know, you, you know, talk to people about, you know, when we have to mark the floor at 4am these days on shows, you just have to, you need to mm -hmm. start marking the floor and loading in at five. So, the show is kind of up and built by midday in a lot of respects, mm -hmm. you know, to give that afternoon with lights off to the creative team mm -hmm. because they need that three, four, sometimes five hours well, of dark time to projection to, as, yeah, as you to know. make it work. Yeah. yeah. To, to make it, to make it work and, and be able to sound check and open the doors on time. So you know, if, 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 you know, if you're a lay person and you walk in the venue at noon and you look around and go, oh, you guys are ready. <laughs> no, 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 no. Far <laughs> from it. You right. know, we, it's it's uh, the details that need to be fluffed yeah, up. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, you know, I, I again, you know, I, I, uh, I choose to embrace it. I choose to embrace it because you have to. Oh, absolutely. And it's, again, it's technology is an, an amazing tool and it's, but you have to understand how to control it. You can't let it control you. 
And that's the other thing that people with new technology, you have to take the end, you have to take the time to know what it is, understand its limits and control it versus it just does, you know, it's, it, it, you don't want to see it. Yeah. You just want the result of what it can do. Yeah. And that takes time. And, and you know, got to prove that you can do it on a show day too. It has oh, to be done. On a show absolutely. Day. And, and the, it, and as we just mentioned, it's like projection is a very time consuming thing, as you know, as far as lining the projectors up every day, you know, you've got multi projectors on top, you know, projecting the same image on top of each other. If they don't line up, it's, then it's, you know, if it's off a little bit and they're throwing long distances, yeah. it, it looks terrible, yeah. you know, and it, it it's, it, I learned, we learned a lot on the Ariana's last tour because we're projecting onto a sphere and, and, oh, and, wow. and hemisphere. And that's tough. I can imagine. So, you know, you've got multi projectors. Well, projecting. with the laser projectors these days, it's a little bit easier. I mean, you're using multiple projectors, but you're not doubling and tripling each, no. each surface. You, you, know? you still need a backup. Yeah, 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 yeah. Even though they are much better than the old ones, they're a lot more reliable. Technology always fails. We're not flying refrigerators. <laughs> you know. <laughs> no, no, thank God. Yeah. But, you know, when you've got 30 something projectors to line up, I mean, you know, yeah. that's a lot. It's, it's a that lot every a lot. day. That is a lot. Uh, a few years ago, I think it was 2015, I did, I did uh, working for a band called Muse and we, it was called the Drones Tour. Mm-hmm. And we had these big orbs, these spheres that would sit on top of the uh, on top of the rig, we had this docking system, and and it was a, a Dutch company that that figured out how to fly these in a systematic way, where you just pushed play, and they would all take off, go do their rotation, and then come back and sit back in their cradle. And to we basically had to scan the airspace in the arena, so the crew would walk around with this big wand, like this big. It looked like this big clothes hanger a big stick with a clothes hanger on it. And they're walking around, <laughs> waving it through all the seats and the up, up and upper bowl and lower bowl and all over the stage. Just like, it was just the most silly looking thing ever. But that was the process. That was the process. You had to somehow scan. Scan the room. Scan the room. Scan the yeah. room. So, so, it, so it would work, you know? And, yeah, the system had to know it's three-dimensional space that it exactly was working and the orbs needed to know whatever was out there and how yeah. far it could go and all that stuff and yeah so, it's so crazy it, stuff it, it was it was you know now they're now they're doing it with uh obviously the little little helicopters whatever they're called now the little the drones little drones there you go <laughs> that was the name of the muse story i think i would have <laughs> come up with that word uh yeah. So but what they're doing now is just so far ahead of what we were trying to do five years ago. You know, we were just on the starting to try to make that work. But what they're doing with drones now is just insane. Have you seen anybody try to do that indoors yet? The, the drone thing where they're flying in formation and, and with lights on them? And Well, it's not really allowed in the safety sense. Yeah. So unless the regulations have changed up recently, they're not allowed inside. Uh, I, don't, I don't think so either. It doesn't matter how reliable the technology is. Is, is there anything technology-wise around the corner that you're excited about? Um, there was, and I know it's still in development stage, uh, but 
I, you know, they, I, I was, was been their consultant for Magic Leap, which is a, uh, they call uh, MR, mixed reality. And it's, it's involves clear lens glasses so that you've got, you're, you know, like we both wear glasses. So we'd be wearing these goggles that have clear lenses, but you would see three-dimensional virtual objects uh, in space. You'd, wow. see it from your, you'd see it from your perspective and I would see it from my perspective. Wow. And it's, it works and functions. That's, I mean, they've been using it, the basics of how that works in XR, which is what we've seen recently in a lot of mm -hmm. television stuff over the last year. So, which is, is that the blank XR, that thing? Yeah, basically, it's, what they, they, it's the same technology they use in Mandalorian. And okay. it's, so what it is, is it's a room of LED screen. Uh, you know, you're in a room, forced perspective type. It's not forced perspective, but it's like angled walls and you've got a ceiling and a floor of LED. You have content playing in that. And then you have three-dimensional objects that work within the environment of whatever's going on on the LED. And then you have live actors. So the, the, only the camera can see the virtual thing. You can't see it obviously without looking through the camera. Magic Leap's technology allows people, individuals to see it through the goggles, but it works the same thing. You have a three-dimensional object that sticks in space or whatever it's doing. And if you look away from it, it stays where you last saw it. It doesn't move, it stays right. there. So it's, you know, it's technology. It, again, it's like the drones where it's a virtual three-dimensional object that understands the space and the environment that it's in. You know, it could be uh, little characters that are running around the room and let's say it runs and it sees my desk, it can jump up on the desk and it understands where the top of the desk is and all that stuff. Right. Or it can jump into my hand and it's, it's crazy technology, but the processing power to make that happen is insane. Um, particularly when you've got multi people doing it at the same time. Right, right. Because uh, everybody's getting their own point of view of yeah. what, what's happening. So you got to so, wear the glasses. I mean, but you have to wear the goggles for it, yeah. Well, um, do you think it'd be similar to, you know, how Coldplay hands out the wristband, the, you know, the DMX wristband kind of thing? Or Yeah, I mean, it, it is, that's very basic of how, you know, it, 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 I think that uses GPS or something like that. No, yeah. that one's all infrared, but it's, yeah. and what they're doing is they, there's different ways. There's either GPS or infrared cameras. And what it's doing is it's projecting uh, an infrared image over the audience. And then that, that signal that, that then gets processed through the system and then controls the color of the individual, individual gotcha. bands. Gotcha. So, but, they, but these glasses don't, it doesn't sound like they'd be an inexpensive piece of kit. I mean, I, no. I, I would, I, I, it's not like you can hand them out to people as they walk in the room. No, no, it's, it, 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 it goes beyond entertainment. That was just one kind of finger to it. It's, it's, it's in medical and military and education and all sorts right. of stuff. It, right. So I think they've kind of, because it's so vast, 
they've kind of had to pull back a bit, tone it down um, and focus in on one aspect of it first and then add things on. Cause it was, gotcha. it, it had the ability, you could, you, you could call it a virtual television screen in front of you. You don't have to have a TV. You don't have to have a computer because a computer could be in the palm of your hand where you you could just do a, a motion because it, it motion sensor it understood it could like what the guys with the coat hangers going around the room, the <laughs> goggles would then scan the room and understand the room that it's in. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, you know, it, it's really complex stuff. Yeah, yeah. You know, to be able to control things with hand motions and stuff like that. It's, uh, it, it's coming, but yeah. it's out there. Yeah. Hey, well, but before I let you go, um, you know, you've, you're, you're, you've had the most wide variety of, of artists you've worked for from, you know, like we're from Slayer and Van Halen, Scorpions, <laughs> you know, all the way to, you know, Beyonce, Madonna, Janet Jackson and everything in between. Is there anybody out there you wish you worked for? Or is there anybody out there you'd go, man, I want to work for them. You know, I, I can see what I would do for this artist. Or, you know, you can say Elvis Presley or you can say, you know, well, you know somebody who's out there now. Um, there's some young artists, younger ones that um, actually it's interesting <laughs> that I had the time to slow down. And, and I, I'm not, I've, I have a Facebook account only because I have an Instagram account. And my Instagram is purely just to kind of show what's in my head and what inspires me and kind of open the world to who I am as an individual and as a human, but also as a designer. And I, I've actually through Instagram connected with a couple of artists and stuff. Really? So yeah, that I'm really interested in, you know, they're, they're not at the level of some of the top artists that I've worked with, but it's something that doesn't matter to me because it's always, what I do is a passion. Yeah. There is one person, one artist that's kind of sitting just above your head off to what would be your right side. Who's that? Massive Attack. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I did the last Massive Attack tour personally. You know, we did, I did the, the mezzanine, uh, the mezzanine 20th anniversary show. Incredible. I, that out of a high level kind of yeah. um, not mainstream band yeah. artists. So, that very rewarding. I, I, very I rewarding. have the utmost respect. I'm a huge fan of theirs. So yeah, that would, it's one of the few people that I've never worked with that I would say yes. I would, yeah, yeah absolutely love working Rob, with. Robert Del Naya is, is not much different than uh, with Trent Reznor as far as involvement and oh, absolutely. out of front of house and, and going through a cue by cue, frame by frame, uh, you know. Well, he's an artist. He's an absolutely. artist. artist. He's, he's, he's not he's, just a musician. He's an yeah, artist as off well. as a, Yeah, that's how we started off. Yeah, absolutely incredible. You know, uh, what a pleasure. What an honor it was to work with them. You know, oh, I'm sure. And, you know, I swapped emails with Robert a few days ago and he's got ideas for this year. He's going to try to get something going if, if, if it's allowed. But, you know, he, he might be one of those guys that, you know, could do one of these blank XR, you know, Live Nation hologram things. Who knows? Who knows? Right. You know, we'll see, you know, because you see Live Nation just bought Veeps. Did you know that? Did you hear that? What's Veeps? Veeps is that thing. Uh, the two brothers from Good Charlotte had this uh, virtual concert 
kind of technology that they were using. Right. I, know, I, I saw that online. I saw that online today, as a matter of fact, you know, and it, so Live Nation could be thinking we might need to move into that, into well, that realm. It's, it's, it's not to replace anything because you're not going to replace a live show. Can't. You're not going to, you know, watching something on a rectangle is yeah. watching something on a rectangle. Yeah. It's not the same as experiencing it as yeah. in a, a tribal way. It just, yeah. well, you, you, it's, it's not, it's not immersive enough. You no. know, and you, you, you want to feel the low end. You want to walk out of the room with your ears ringing. You want, you want you to, to feel you want to like smell you it. there. Yeah. You, you want, want to smell it. it, you feel it, everything, yeah. you know, there's, you cannot replace because as human beings, we're energy, we're, we're made up of electricity and our energy carries off and it bounces off of other people's energy. And they, so that's why sometimes we get along with people. Sometimes we don't. And it's, yeah. you know, it's, they've got the right, they've got the wrong vibe. But what they're saying is their energy is not, it's clashing with your energy. You know, that's an interesting point because how, how many shows have you programmed and rehearsed and you're like, man, I'm not really sure what you had. And then you put an audience in front of it. Oh yeah. It just changes. Oh, it, it just it changes. It. And it's like, wow, this is really something I, I, you know, you, you can't see it in an empty room, but you fill it full of people and, you, and, you, and it all of a sudden it comes alive. It's weird. Well, I tell the artists that all the time. I say, you know, if you're happy now, wait till you put an audience in there and feel that. Yeah. It's going to be, it goes because I've done it thousands of times I understand the audience is what makes the show it's not a show totally totally it's the it's the flow of energy between an artist and the and the audience and the audience uh, with each other and you know it's that's something that watching a rectangle is never going to replace <laughs> not at all not at all but it is what they're what they're doing i've actually sent them a whole proposal uh, on some stuff of you know, until things get up to 100%, even if it, a way of recouping revenue, even if they're at yeah. 50%. And it, yeah. it is through all of that stuff. Yeah. It's, 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 a, it's a way of um, exposing the artist to people, particularly people that can't go to a city. If they're in a place that they just, nobody ever comes to them, they don't have the means to get to somewhere. At least they have... The next best thing. No, mm. it's not in the audience. You're not standing in an audience, but at least you get to experience somewhat. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's it's coming. It's just an augmentation of of live yeah. shows. Well, all all this technology and whatnot, and you know, like, like you know, you, the shows you do, they're just so big. Sometimes too big, in my opinion. I have to say. <laughs> um, I you know I want to see. I want to give you a truck of gear sometime. I want to give right. you just a fucking truck of gear because that's that's where I appreciate you the most. You know, that's where that's where I, I that's where I'm moved emotionally by your work. You know, with you know, like like again, the Cure, Nine Inch Nails, Sade, Prince. You know, those days were just fuck. You know, I, I love those days. Yeah. I mean, I really do. And I, and I, if I had an artist that would just be happy and understand and trust that I could do something with that, I'm down for it. Yeah. 
Okay. Lastly, uh, I, I, I want Matt to get in here and we can talk about how you guys worked together once. Matt, Matt was an eye contact back from the LSD days. And uh, Matt, do you, do you want to, do you want to remind Roy when you and he worked together? Oh, yeah. God bless well, him for being an eye contact. On, I kind of, yeah. Before you jumped on Chris, I, I kind of had to say that, but uh, yeah. So back in, I think it was like 95 or 96, um, you know, I had the pleasure of spending a little bit of time, you know, as, as the Grom in the corner working on these, you know, ever failing lights. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but having, uh, you know, talking about conveying a feeling or emotion, because this was a theatrical show. This wasn't a musical artist. This was something that was supposed to be basically, a, a, you know, a live action movie on stage. And it was the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And uh, yeah, do you remember that, Roy? Oh yeah, I got talked into it by yeah. Ricky, I can only Ricky Farr. All the things that you did, it was kind of like, wow, what's he doing here kind of thing. But it was like a month or two in, a, in an airplane hangar, just kind of uh, putting it all together. And uh, But I had the pleasure of uh, spending some time with you and, and I, I invited out to a dinner a couple of times. And I remember that during this conversation, you, you guys had, I'm trying to think about that dinner. There was more than one, because one was Japanese and it was sake. But you and the front of house engineer were all over Chateauneuf du Pop wine at the time. And it was all about the Chateauneuf du Pop. And, and, <laughs> so, and I, how I remember that, I have no idea. But, uh, but it, was, was uh, it? It, was, it was a... Who was the front of house engineer on that? I forgot. Oh, English guy, really short, blonde hair, shorter guy. I don't want to say he was heavier set, but um, I can't remember his name. You know, again, peon you know, tech backstage, just kind of, you know, getting his hands dirty, <laughs> waiting for the UPS guy to bring spare parts. So do you, do you still enjoy a nice glass of wine and a good plate of food, Ryan? Uh, uh, definitely food. I, and I appreciate wine. I don't, I really have uh, over the last year, I mean, it was last, actually, it was almost over a year ago where I decided one morning, eh, just got to take a break. Yeah. And I mean, it's not that I haven't had some wine over the, within the last couple of months, but it's just like, I'm with you. You know, I just, I appreciate it, but I just, I actually appreciate, um, not that I was ever foggy or anything, but there was, it was, it never interfered with my work, but it just felt a clarity that I hadn't felt for a long time. Yeah. It's the next um, day. It's the next day for me. You know, it's not drinking it, going down. It's waking no. up the next day going, whoa. What did what? I do? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, 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 st I still, I don't, I don't drink nearly as much as I, as I used to, you know, but, or, you know, but I, I've definitely slowed down. Yeah, and, and it's good. It's, it's important to do that. I mean, it's not that you shouldn't be able to appreciate wine, but it's just, you know, the less you drink, the more you appreciate it. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I agree. Well, thank you, Roy. You've been a gentleman. I appreciate you, uh, you know, expressing your thoughts and uh, waxing poetic with us. Uh, it was it was really good fun, and and we need to catch up one on one, face to face, in the same room at some point in time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know. And I apologize for ruining your whole wonderful resume of all the great artists by putting the Power Rangers out on that one. Oh no, no. Listen, there's other <laughs> stuff too. There are little things here and there that I've done that, you know, just, just kind of pretend that I never did them. <laughs> but it's, you know, I, I, I don't know if it's consciously or subconsciously forget that I did them, but, you know, Power Rangers just, you know, 
shows my diversity. There you go. <laughs> and, 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 the, and the check showed up on time, hopefully. It, well, fortunately, with Ricky Farr, I was lucky. <laughs> okay, man. I look forward to seeing you sometime. And best of luck. And uh, and uh, you know, I'm optimistic. I'm thinking. I'm thinking it's sooner than later. You know. We're, oh, absolutely. We'll we'll be back up and running. And fortunately, we have adults in the in in, in the White House now. You know. Correct. I don't know if you saw my T-shirt. I, I, I do. Roy's wearing a Dumb and Dumber T-shirt with <laughs> with uh, with Donald Trump and Kanye West. <laughs> <laughs> it oh, says on the back uh, on the back it says for for don and the ye every day is a no-brainer <laughs> <laughs> okay so so, so Con- kanye won't be calling you so you can oh well, you he can, has uh, and i've refused so yeah, okay. same here well you know i uh, i didn't refuse i, I like, did a couple of things and I, I did a couple of things and i thought what was i thinking yeah you know, no. I don't like talking shit about ours, but you know, I just, this one person I have no respect for. Yeah. Particularly after what he did this past year, that was fucked up. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, much respect to you. Same here. Much respect Absolutely. to Seven and uh, Will Sharp and, and uh, Corey doesn't work with you anymore, does he? No, Corey works for Silent House Productions now. Okay, but you still have Tobias? No, it just- Oh, it, no. It, it was an interesting uh, experiment with partners, young partners. Okay. And I mean, Seven started on the premise of being able to work with younger artists yeah. that I, because of the level of most artists I work with, there were a lot of younger artists that I would like to work, but I just couldn't feasibly right. do it. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I started Seven on the basis of having younger designers work with me that you know I can oversee or collaborate with and at least gotcha. have my hands on stuff that, the artists that would come to us would know that it was under my umbrella. It was under my watch and all right. of that. Well, I did, I did uh, Skrillex with Corey in 2014. So okay. was kind of, <laughs> I saw, I saw that end of it. And I like, really liked Corey. Corey's a smart guy. He's a very smart guy and a very good prog- programmer. And, you know, it just, they, he had a different ambition of what he, how he felt the company should go. I mean, we were doing great where the, the our financial income was growing in leaps and bounds uh, as yeah. every year. But Corey's a brick and mortar kind of guy. You know, <laughs> he's like, he wants an office full of people. And I didn't want that. I don't want to have a lot of employees. It was not necessary. Yeah. You don't have a lot of employees unless you have to have that yeah. you know you, you, you liked, don't want you don't want the main building of tate towers you know no i don't want that they can have that but it's yeah. not that's not what a design you know a design company doesn't have to have that and that's and as we've seen a lot of people have learned over this last year you don't need an office to function unless you are right. physically doing something you right. can do stuff and it's, we've functioned for years over the computer and internet yeah so, you know, that's kind of what happened was he went off to work with a company that likes to have an office and a lot of employees. And- right. Well, I'm sure he's doing well. He's a talented yeah. guy. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Well, oh, 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 this will be goodbye, I guess, then. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you have something you want to talk about. No. Uh, okay, great. Well, well thank I mean, you we could go on forever. On we, stuff, we, we, we could, and we will some point soon. You know, I'm, I'm one of those guys that can sit at the dinner table and, and talk about music till the sun comes up. You know, I just, oh, just well, we, we also have other interests, things like food yeah. and we have design, yeah. like yeah. 
you know, interior design and whatever. That's yeah, the yeah. thing. It's oh, like, I'm, I'm, that's, I'm, I'm at the dinner table, you know, I'm, I'm, I love talking about work. People say, hey, no gig talk. I'm like, no, why? If not now, <laughs> when? You know, I, 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 this is what we do. This is what we love. Let's, let's chat, you know? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. Agreed. Okay, my friend. All right. Well, you guys take care. Awesome uh, to see you both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cheers, Good bud. seeing you again, Matt. Nice to see you again. <laughs> Thanks. All right, cheers. Appreciate see you. It. it was great. Take care. All right. Bye. Take care.